long time no speak. I just wanted to say thank you for uh, listening, even though I've not really been consistent. I'll be totally honest with you, one of the main reasons, which is kind of ironic I guess, is that I find it really boring to record these, <laughs> which, you know, that's the intention I guess. I also find it kind of stressful, um, like thinking up ideas and worrying if they're going to be too boring or not boring enough, or if they're going to be too short. I'm gonna, you know, run out of breath. <laughs> um, but also, the other reason is because I either make myself really tired during them or I feel like I'm not tired enough. But I digress. I am here now and I have got another enthralling wiki article for you. So I hope you enjoy this. And as usual, I have definitely not read it first, so please excuse any pronunciation errors and I will try to correct them as boringly as possible. So tonight's topic for your perusal is Hypnosis. Here we go. For the states induced by hypnotic drugs see sleep and unconsciousness. Ooh. Mesmerize. For the song, hypnotized and hypnotist. Redirect here. For other uses, see blah 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 blah. That's, we don't need that shit. Okay, hypnosis is a human condition involving focused attention, reduced peripheral awareness, and an enhanced capacity to respond to suggestion. There's an image here called Hypnotic Seance, 1887, by Richard Burr. It's a somewhat unsettling image, actually. And underneath that is a uh, I don't know if it's Charcot or Charcot demonstrating hypnosis on a quote-unquote hysterical patient Blanche Marie Whitman who is supported by Joseph Babinski so I think that one's actually a photo might check that out later um, photographic studies in, in hypnosis Abnormal Psychology, Photographic Studies in Hypnosis, 1938. There are competing theories explaining hypnosis and related phenomena. Altered state theories see hypnosis as an altered state of mind or trance, marked by a level of awareness different from the ordinary state of consciousness. In contrast, Non-state theories see hypnosis as variously a type of placebo effect, a redefinition of an interaction with a therapist, or form of imaginative role enactment. 
During hypnosis, a person is said to have heightened focus and concentration. Hypnotized subjects are said to show an increased response to suggestions. Hypnosis usually begins with a hypnotic induction involving a series of preliminary instructions and suggestion. The use of hypnotism for therapeutic purposes is referred to as hypnotherapy. While its use as a form of entertainment for an audience is known as stage hypnosis, a form of mentalism. Hypnosis for pain management is likely to decrease acute and chronic pain in most individuals. Research show mixed results on the effectiveness of hypnotherapy treatment for some other problems such as smoking cessation. It's interesting, I've never heard of hypnosis for pain management actually. The use of hypnosis in other contexts such as a form of therapy to retrieve and integrate early trauma is controversial within the scientific mainstream. Research indicates that hypnotizing an individual may aid the formation of false memories and that hypnosis does not help people recall events more accurately. The word hypnosis and hypnotism both derive from the term neurohypnotism, nervous sleep, all of which were coined by a very long fancy French name that I'm not going to try and pronounce in the 1820s. Actually, you know what? I will try how to pronounce it. Etienne Félix de Henin de Gouvelez. The term hypnosis is derived from the ancient Greek hypnos, meaning sleep, and the suffix hypnu, put to sleep. Oh, sorry, suffix osis, which means put to sleep. Sleep and put to sleep. And these words were popularised in English by the Scottish surgeon James Braid to whom they are sometimes wrongly attributed. Uh, around 1841. Braid based his practice on that developed by Franz Mesmer, as his followers, which were called Mesmerism, that's a cool name, Mesmer, or Animal Magnetism, but differed in his theory as to how the procedure worked. Uh, characteristics. So that was uh, etymology and this is characteristics. A person in a state of hypnosis has focused attention and increased suggestibility. The hypnotized individual appears to heed only the communications of the hypnotist and typically responds in an uncritical automatic fashion while ignoring all aspects of the environment other than those pointed out by the hypnotist. In a hypnotic state, an individual tends to see, feel, smell, and otherwise perceive in accordance with the hypnotist's suggestions. Even though these suggestions may be in an apparent contradiction to the actual stimuli present in the environment, the effects of hypnosis are not limited to sensory change. Even the subject's memory and awareness of self 
may be altered by suggestion, and the effect of the suggestions may be extended post-hypnotically into the subject's subsequent waking activity. It could be said that the hypnotic suggestion is explicitly intended to make use of the placebo effect. For example, in 1994, Irving Kirsch categorised hypnosis as a non-deceptive placebo, a method that openly makes use of suggestion and employs methods to amplify its effects. In Trance on Trial, a 1989 text directed at the legal profession, Legal scholar Alan W. Shefflin and psychologist Gerald Lee Shapiro observed that the deeper the hypnotism, the more likely a particular characteristic is to appear, and the greater extent to which it is manifested. Shefflin and Shapiro identified 20 separate characteristics that hypnotized subjects might display. Disassociation, detachment, suggestibility, idiosensory activity, catalepsy, idiomotor responsiveness, age regression, revivification, hyperamnesia, automatic or suggested, amnesia, postoponic responses, hypnotic analgesia and anesthesia, glove anesthesia, somnambulism, automatic writing, time distortion, release of inhibitions, change in capacity for volitional activity, trance logic and effortless imagination. Definitions. De Cuvillier's coined the term hypnotism and hypnosis as an abbreviation for neurohypnotism or nervous sleep. Braid popularized the terms and gave the earliest definition of hypnosis. He contrasted the hypnotic state with normal sleep and defined it as a pe peculiar condition of the nervous system induced by a fixed and abstracted system. Sorry, induced by a fixed and abstracted attention of the mental and visual eye on one object not of an exciting nature. Braid elaborated upon this brief definition in later work in Hypnotic Therapeutics. The real origin and essence of the hypnotic condition is the induction of a habit of abstraction or mental concentration in which, as in reverie or spontaneous abstraction, powers of the mind are so much engrossed with a single idea or train of thought as for the nonce to render the individual unconscious of or indifferently conscious to all other ideas, impressions or trains of thought. The hypnotic sleep, therefore, is the very antithesis or opposite mental and physical condition to that which precedes and accompanies common sleep. Therefore, Braid defined hypnotism as a state of mental concentration that often leads to a form of progressive relaxation. Later, in his Physiolog Physiology of Fascination in 1855,
Braid conceded that his original terminology was misleading and argued that the term hypnotism or nervous sleep should be reserved for the minority, 10%, of subjects who exhibit amnesia, substituting the term modoidism, meaning concentration upon a single idea as a description for the more alert state experienced by others. So that's interesting. So basically they're saying only 10% of people would exhibit amnesia from hypnosis. A new definition of hypnosis derived from the academic psychology was provided in 2005 when the Society for Psychological Hypnosis, Division 30 of the American Psychological Association, published the following formal definition. Hypnosis typically involves an introduction to the procedure during which the subject is told that suggestions for imaginative experiences will be presented. The hypnotic induction is an extended initial suggestion for using one's imagination and may contain further elaborations of the introduction. A hypnotic procedure is used to encourage and evaluate responses to suggestions. When using hypnosis, one person, the subject, is guided by another, the hypnotist, to respond to suggestions for changes in subjective experience, alterations in perception, sensation, emotion, thought or behaviour. Persons can also learn self-hypnosis, which is the act of administering hypnotic procedures on one's own. If the subject responds to hypnotic suggestions, it is generally inferred that hypnosis has been induced. Many believe that hypnotic responses and experiences are characteristic of a hypnotic state. While some think that it is not necessary to use the word hypnosis as part of the hypnotic induction, others view it as essential. Michael Nash provides a list of eight definitions of hypnosis by different authors in addition to his own view that hypnosis is a special case of psychological regression. 1. Janet. Near the turn of the century and more recently, Ernest Hilgard have defined hypnosis in the terms of disassociation. 2. So social psychologists Sabin and Co have described hypnosis in terms of role theory. Hypnosis is a role that people play. They act as if they were hypnotized. Three, TX Barber defined hypnosis in terms of non-hypnotic behavioral parameters, such as task motivation and the act of labeling the situation as hypnosis. Four, in his early writings, Weizenhofer conceptualized hypnosis as a state of enhanced suggestibility. Most recently, he has defined hypnotism as a form of influence by one person exerted on another through the medium or agency of suggestion. 5. Psychoanalysts Gill and Brenman described hypnosis by using the psychoanalytic concept of regression in the service of the ego. 6. Edmondson has assessed hypnosis as being merely a state of relaxation. 7. 
Spiegel and Spiegel have implied that hypnosis is a biological capacity. And eight, Erickson is considered the leading exponent of the position that hypnosis is a special, inner-directed, altered state of functioning. Joe Griffin and Ivan Tyrrell, the originators of the human givens approach, define hypnosis as an artificial way of accessing the REM state, the same brain state in which dreaming occurs, and suggest that this definition, when properly understood, resolves many of the mysteries and controversies surrounding hypnosis. They see the REM state as being vitally important for life itself, for programming in our instinctive knowledge initially, and then for adding to this throughout life. They explain this by pointing out that in a sense, all learning is post-hypnotic, which explains why the number of ways people can put into a hypnotic state are so varied. Anything that focuses a person's attention inward or outward puts them into a trance. Induction Hypnosis is normally preceded by a hypnotic induction technique. Traditionally, this was interpreted as a method of putting the subject into a hypnotic trance. However, subsequent non-state theorists have viewed it differently, seeing it as a means of heightening client expectation, defining their role, focusing attention, etc. There are several different induction techniques. One of the most influential methods was Braid's eye fixation technique, also known as Braidism. Many variations of the eye fixation approach exist, including the induction used in the Stanford Hypnosis Susceptibility Scale, the most widely, widely used research tool in the field of hypnotism. Braid's original description of his induction is as follows. Take any bright object, for example a lancet case, between the thumb at four and middle fingers on the left hand, hold it from about eight to fifteen inches from the eyes, at such position above the forehead as may be necessary to produce the greatest possible strain upon the eyes and eyelids, and enable the patient to maintain a steady fixed stare at the object. The patient might be made to understand that he is to keep the eyes steadily fixed on the object and the mind riveted on the idea of that one object. It will be observed that owing to this consensual adjustment of the eyes, the pupils will be at first concentrate, sorry, at first contracted, they will shortly begin to dilate, and after they have done so to a considerable extent and have assumed a wavy motion, if the fore and middle fingers on the right hand extended and a little separated are carried from the object towards the eyes, most probably the eyelids will close involuntarily with a vibratory motion. If this is not the case, or the patient allows the eyeballs to move, desire him to begin anew, giving him to understand that he is to allow the eyelids to close when the fingers are again carried towards the eyes, but that the eyeballs must be kept fixed in the same position and the mind riveted to the one idea of the object held above the eyes. In general, it will be found that the eyelids close with a vibratory motion or become spasmodically closed. What I find interesting about that is um, a lot of techniques to help babies get to sleep is to, it's, um, 
one of the reasons they suggest like placement of mobiles in the cot is to have them slightly uh, above where the child's head is so that they have to look back to see the mobile because that strain on their eyes actually encourages them to close their eyes. So that's interesting. Braid later acknowledged that the hypnotic induction technique was not necessary in every case, and subsequent researchers have generally found that on average, it contributes less than previously expected to the effect of hypnotic suggestions. Variations and alternatives to the original hypnotic induction technique were subsequently developed. However, this method is still considered authoritative. In 1941, Robert White wrote, It can be safely stated that 9 out of 10 hypnotic techniques call for reclining posture, muscular relaxation, and optical fixation followed by eye closure. Suggestion When James Braid first described hypnotism, he did not use the term suggestion, but referred instead to the act of focusing the conscious mind of the subject upon a single dominant idea. Brain's main therapeutic strategy involves stimulating or reducing physiological functioning in different regions of the body. In his later works, however, Braid placed increasing emphasis upon the use of a variety of different verbal and non-verbal forms of suggestion including the use of waking suggestion and self-hypnosis. Subsequently, Hippolyte Bernheim shifted the emphasis from the physical state of hypnosis onto the psychological process of verbal suggestion. I define hypnotism as the induction of a peculiar physical, i.e. mental condition, which increases the susceptibility to suggestion. Often it is true, the hypnotic sleep that may be induced facilitates suggestion, but it is not the necessary preliminary. It is suggestion that rules hypnotism. Bernheim's conception of the primacy of verbal suggestion in hypnotism dominated the subject throughout the 20th century, leading some authorities to declare him the father of modern hypnotism. Contemporary hypnotism uses a variety of suggestions, suggestion forms, including direct verbal suggestions, indirect verbal suggestions, such as requests or insinuations, metaphors and other rhetorical figures of speech, and non-verbal suggestion in the form of mental imagery, voice tonality, and physical manipulation. A distinction is commonly made between suggestions delivered permissively and those delivered in a more authoritarian manner. Harvard hypnotherapist Deidre Barrett writes that most modern research suggestions are designed to bring about immediate responses, whereas hypnotherapeutic suggestions are usually post-hypnotic ones that are intended to trigger responses affecting behaviour for periods ranging from days to a lifetime in duration. The hypnotherapeutic ones are often repeated in multiple sessions before they achieve peak effectiveness. Conscious and unconscious mind. Some hypnotists view suggestion as a form of communication that is directed primarily to the subject's conscious mind. 
whereas others view it as a means of communicating with the unconscious or subconscious mind. I'm going to read that again. Some hypnotists view suggestion as a form of communication that is directed primarily to the subject's conscious mind, whereas others view it as a means of communicating with the unconscious or subconscious mind. These concepts were introduced into hypnotism at the end of the 19th century by Sigmund Freud and Pierre Jeannette. Sigmund Freud's psychoanalytic theory describes conscious thoughts as being at the surface of the mind and unconscious processes as being deeper in the mind. Braid, Bernheim and other Victorian pioneers of hypnotism did not refer to the unconscious mind, but saw hypnotic suggestion as being addressed to the subject's conscious mind. Indeed, Braid actually defines hypnotism as focused conscious attention upon a dominant idea or suggestion. Different views regarding the nature of the mind have led to different conceptions of suggestion. Hypnotists who believe that responses are mediated primarily by an unconscious mind, like Milton Erickson, make use of indirect suggestions, such as metaphors or stories, whose intended meaning may be concealed from the subject's conscious mind. The concept of subliminal suggestions depends upon this view of the mind. By contrast, hypnotists who believe that response to suggestion are primarily mediated by the conscious mind, such as Theodore Barber and Nicholas Vanos, have tended to make more use of direct verbal suggestion and instructions. Idiodynamic reflex. The first neuropsychological theory of hypnotic suggestion was introduced early by James Baird. Let's have a look at how long we've been going. Okay, we've still got some time. The first neuropsychological theory of hypnotic suggestion was introduced early by James Braid, who adopted his friend and colleague, William Carpenter's theory of the idiomotor reflex response to account for the phenomenon of hypnotism. Carpenter had observed from close examination of everyday experience that under certain circumstances, the mere idea of a muscular movement could be sufficient to produce a reflexive or automatic contraction or movement of the muscles involved, albeit in a very small degree. Braid extended Carpenter's theory to encompass the observation that a wide variety of bodily responses beside muscular movement can be thus affected. For example, the idea of sucking a lemon can automatically stimulate salivation, a secretory response. Braid therefore adopted the term idiodynamic, meaning the power of an idea, to explain a broad range of psychophysiological mind-body phenomena. Braid coined the term modo idiodynamic to refer to the theory that hypnotism operates by concentrating attention on a single idea in order to amplify the idiodynamic reflex response. Variations of the basic idiomotor or idiodynamic theory of suggestion have continued to exercise considerable influence over subsequent theories of hypnosis, including those of Clark L. Hull, Hans Einsek and Ernest Rossi.
in Victorian psychological in Victorian psychology, the word idea encompasses any mental representation, including mental imagery and memories. Susceptibility. Braid made a rough distinction between different stages of hypnosis, which he termed the first and second conscious stage of hypnotism. He later replaced this with a distinction between subhypnotic full hypnotic and hypnotic coma stages. Jean-Martin Charcot made a similar distinction between stages, which he named somnambulism, lethargy and catalepsy. However, Ambrose August Lebeau and Hippolyte Bernheim introduced more complex hypnotic depth scales based on a combination of behaviour physiological and subjective responses, some of which were due to direct suggestion and some of which were not. In the first few decades of the 20th century, these early clinical depth scales were superseded by more sophisticated hypnotic susceptibility scales. Based on experimental research, the most influential were the Davis Husband and Friedlander Sarban scales, developed in the 1930s. Andre Weisenhofer and Ernest R. Hilgard developed the Stanford Scale of Hypnotic Susceptibility in 1959, consisting of 12 suggestion test items following a standardised hypnotic eye fixation induction script, and this has become one of the most widely referenced research tools in the field of hypnosis. Soon after, in 1962, Ronald Shaw and Emily Carota Orme developed a similar group scale called the Harvard Group Scale of Hypnotic Susceptibility. Whereas the older depth scales tried to infer the level of hypnotic trance from supposed observ observable signs such as spontaneous amnesia, most subsequent scales have measured the degree of observed or self-evaluated responsiveness to specific suggestion tests such as direct suggestions or arm rigidity, the Stanford, Harvard, and most other susceptibility scales convert numbers into an assessment of a person's susceptibility as high, medium, or low. Approximately 80% of the population are medium, 10% are high, and 10% are low. There is some controversy as whether this is distributed on a normal bell-shaped curve or whether it is bimodal with a small blip of people at the high end. Hypno hypnotisability scores are highly stable over a person's lifetime. Research by Deidre Barrett has found that there are two distinct types of highly susceptible subjects, which she terms fantasizers and dissociators. Fantasizers score high on absorption scales and find it easy to block out real-world stimuli without hypnosis. Spend much time daydreaming, report imaginary companions as a child, and grew up with parents who encouraged imaginary play. Dissociators often have a history of childhood abuse or other trauma, learn to escape into numbness and forget unpleasant events. Their association to daydreaming was often going blank rather than creating vividly recalled fantasies. Both score equally high on formal scales of hypnotic susceptibility. 
individuals with disassociative identity disorder have the highest hypnotizability of any clinical group, followed by those with post-traumatic stress disorder. History precursors. People have been entering into hypnotic type trances for thousands of years. In many cultures and religions, it was regarded as a form of meditation. Modern day hypnosis, however, started in the late 18th century and was made popular by Franz Mesmer, a German physician who became known as the father of modern hypnotism. In fact, hypnosis used to be known as mesmerism, as it was named after Mesmer. Mesmer held the opinion that hypnosis was a sort of mystical force that flows from the hypnotist to the person being hypnotised, but his theory was dismissed by critics who asserted that there is no magical element to hypnotism. Abby Faria, a Luso-Gorn Catholic monk, was one of the pioneers of the scientific study of hypnotism, following on from the work of Franz Mesmer. Unlike Mesmer, who claimed that hypnosis was Media- mediated by animal magnetism, Faria understood that it worked purely by the power of suggestion. Before long, hypnotism started finding its way into the world of modern medicine. The use of hypnotism in the medical field was made popular by surgeons and physicians and researchers, who helped to reveal the biological and physiological benefits of hypnotism. According to his writings, Braid began to hear reports of concerning various oriental meditative practices soon after the release of his publication on hypnotism. He first discussed some of these oriental practices in a series of articles. He drew analogies between his own practice of hypnotism and various forms of Hindu yoga meditation and other spiritual practices, especially those involving voluntary burial and apparent human hibernation. Braid's interest in these practices stems from his studies in the School of Religions, an ancient Persian text describing a wide variety of oriental religious rituals, beliefs and practices. Last May 1843, a gentleman residing in Edinburgh, personally unknown to me, who had long resided in India, favoured me with a letter expressing his approbation of the views which I had published on the nature and causes of hypnotic and mesmeric phenomena. In cooperation of my views, he referred to what he had previously witnessed in oriental regions and recommended me to look into the Dabistan, a book lately published for additional proof to the same effect. On much recommendation, I immediately sent for a copy in which I found many statements corroborative of the fact but the Eastern Saints are all self-hypnotizers, adopting means essentially the same as those which I had recommended for similar purposes. Although he rejected the transcendental metaphysical interpretation given to these phenomena outright, Braid accepted that these accounts of Oriental practices supported his view that the effects of hypnotism could be produced in solitude without the presence of any other person, as he had already proved his own satisfaction with the experiments he had conducted in November 1841, and he saw correlations between many of the metaphysical oriental practices and his own rational neurohypnotism, and totally rejected all of the fluid theories and magnetic practices of the mesmerists.
as he later wrote, inasmuch as patients can throw themselves into the nervous sleep and manifest all the usual phenomena of mesmerism through their own unaided efforts, as I have so repeatedly proved by causing them to maintain a steady, steady fixed gaze at any point, concentrating their whole mental energies on the idea of the object looked at, or that the same may arise by the patient looking at the point of his own finger, or as the Magi of Persia and Yogi of India have practised for the last 2,400 years for religious purposes, throwing themselves into their ecstatic trances by each maintaining a steady fixed gaze at the tip of his own nose. It is obvious that there is no need for an exoteric influence to produce the phenomenon of mesmerism. The great object of all these processes is to induce a habit of abstraction or concentration of attention in which the subject is entirely absorbed with one idea or train of ideas while he is unconscious of or indifferently conscious to every other object, purpose or action. I think that will do for now. I hope you found that either interesting sufficiently boring or both if you want to talk about anything discussed you can reach me at hermit ramblings on instagram or hermit ramblings at gmail.com have a lovely sleep